This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. So this morning, uh, we're continuing our From the Overflow series. So this series, the point of it uh, is that at the start of the year, we thought about uh, what are the things that God has done, what are the kind of different ways that His love and His grace are shaped such that they change our lives, that God changes who we are and how we live. Uh, it was kind of the filling up. I think you might remember, Travis, literally filling up cups of water up to overflowing. It was very dramatic. Um, this series is to think about a little bit more practically, what does it actually look like to overflow with God's love and God's grace into various spheres of life? So this morning we're looking at overflowing into your home. I don't know what your home is like. The home that I have uh, is a place I spend a lot of time. Maybe you do too. Uh, it's a place I like to relax when I can, put my feet up. And often in church, we talk about, like, how do you live as a Christian at church? You know, what does it look like to be God's people together? Uh, we preach about that a lot. Maybe we also preach about other spheres of your life. You know, how does, how does this sermon, how do I apply it at work or at school or at uni? Uh, what does it look like to, to live out uh, this message with my friends? You know, to go into the harvest field. That's what Lewis preached about last week. But what about your home? Is your home a space where you overflow, where, where Jesus overflows out of you into that environment, into that space. So that's what we're going to think about this morning. And actually, this is an ancient, ancient, ancient question. The early Christians, the first Christians were asking this question from pretty much the very start of the whole Christian thing. How do I use the resource of my home, the space I have there, the relationships that take place there, how do I use this space as a space for Jesus. So that's question one. Straight into it. Except my click is not working. Click. There it is. Question one. What is your home like? Let's just take stock to start with. Uh, think about who lives there. Might just be you. So you just write me. Who lives there? Uh, how much time do they spend living there? Uh, what happens there? regularly. You don't have to write in the things that happen randomly, just the regular rhythms of your life. Uh, maybe even mention who visits regularly if someone comes into your home often. Just kind of take stock. I'll give you 30 seconds. Use your little pencil. Uh, hopefully, Did everyone get one? If not, just get your phone out and... Oh, Travis has got a couple more. No, we're good. Well, good, Lewis, you didn't need to panic me. We had enough. <laughs> I've done some diving into the census. There are lots of different kinds of households, lots of different homes in Australia. According to the Australian census data, one in four Australian households have one occupant. They call them lone Households. 
I don't know if that's true in this room or if you're at home. Uh, One in four. So when we think about a a home, a household, our mental picture might be mum and dad and the kids living in the family home, uh, but that's not an accurate representation of what homes actually look like in Australia. You know, of the 71% that are classed by the census boffins as family households, less than half of those are that cliched nuclear family, a couple with at least one child. Some families have just one parent. Some families are just a couple and there's no children in the household. Some households are not family-shaped at all. They they call them group households. There it is, 3.9%. That might be a share house or just living with a friend or having a friend live with you, even temporarily. On census night, if that was the situation, that's you, 3.9%. So, yeah, the point I'm making is that everyone's home is different even just on this basic level, but all sorts of other ways as well. Everyone's home looks different. And so I was really struggling this week in thinking about how do I preach about how the gospel overflows into your home when each of your homes is unique. I can't just get up here and tell you exactly how to run your household because it's not going to apply to everyone. In fact, it's going to apply to less than half. So, what we're going to do is I've given you these booklets so that you can do some of this work yourself. I'm going to try and walk you through the thought process for you and your household. Of We've taken stock, what does your household look like? And as we move through, hopefully we can apply some principles from Scripture. Are you ready? Good. Just have to check, you know. So during the week, uh, some of you will have done a Bible study. If you didn't do it, it's on the website. You can jump on and have a look whenever you like in the teaching tab. But we did a study on Colossians chapter 3. And we looked at kind of some just some general gospel principles about what it looks like to live in the overflow or from the overflow of what Jesus has done for us, how it should shape us and change us. And we, we did a little bit of work in trying to apply that to our homes. I don't have time this morning to rehash all of that for anyone who didn't do it in Bible study this week. Um, I'll, I'll do my best to kind of give you a real fast-forward version with some highlights. Um, basically, it starts like this, Colossians chapter 3. Um, Paul describes the Christian life as a life lived out of the overflow a life where your heart and mind are set on Christ and not on earthly things, which is very poetic. It's a nice opening principle. It's not particularly practical yet, but he's getting there. Don't worry. Uh, He talks about how you need to get rid of your old earthly nature, uh, which is a kind of shorthand for that, that human propensity that we all seem to have for breaking things. ourselves, our family members, our friends, our world, because of the selfish desires and uncontrolled emotions uh, that run wild within us. And he he lists all sorts of things, you know, he gets real practical here, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed, 
You know, in other words, uh, our hearts and our minds are full of these things that are not good for us and not good for others. We hurt ourselves and others with our words and our, our hearts are turned against others and our actions are against others. And in fact, Paul says, our hearts are turned against God. And so, he says, we need to take off that old self and put on a new self, which is shaped like this, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and most of all, love. That's the key principle. This is the good life, the Jesus-shaped life, the life that flows from his life dwelling in our hearts and minds. If you know Jesus, if you know his love for you, then overflowing from his love for you is your love for others. The same as if you know his forgiveness, overflowing from his forgiveness in you is forgiveness for others and kindness and gentleness and compassionate and so on. So question two, what would more of these things look like in your specific home? How are you going to apply these principles in your home? You might just want to pick one that really stands out to you. Uh, you might want to just go with the vibe of the whole list. Uh, whatever, kind of, whatever God's putting on your heart right now, I just want you to jot it down on, on page two, question two. What would more of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, more love in your home. How are we going with that? Do you go easy on yourself? Do you go hard? Pick the hardest one? What do you reckon? Can be challenging. Now, you might be saying, Johnny, so far... None of this Bible passage that you didn't even read properly has anything to do with households. But we're getting there. See, Paul himself, in this letter, takes a, a, a turn at this moment in this chapter where he goes, let's apply this to our households, to our homes. And so, uh, I am going to actually read now the rest of chapter 3. And the first verse of chapter 4, because some monks got the numbers wrong. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, 
Provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Have you read these words before? They're slightly controversial, highly controversial. You know, it's funny, this passage has always been controversial, highly controversial. It's just that the thing that it's controversial for today and the thing it was controversial for when Paul wrote it are almost exact opposites. (laughs) Poor old Paul uh, has put this down as an attempt to apply those gospel principles we just looked at to households in his world, in this city, in Colossae. Uh, He does the same thing for the church in Ephesus. Uh, If you like reading parallel passages, you can look that up sometime in Ephesians 5. Uh, This this is really hard for us to kind of wrap our heads around, so I'm going to do a bit of work on it uh, to help you understand what, what is going through Paul's mind. So, what is a household in the time of Paul, in the time of Jesus, in the time these words were written? Well, it wasn't very similar to our households today. Picture this. A household consisted of both the people who lived under the roof, or roofs if there were multiple dwellings on the land, the people and the business, the means of production. It was all the one word, it was all the one concept. When people thought about a household, they thought about the people and the business. At the top of this family business, was a man. He was the boss of the house. He owned the house, he owned the business, he owned slaves that worked for him, and effectively, he owned his wife and he owned his children. It's a pretty foreign framework to wrap your head around, to imagine yourself into a world where that was considered the right way to do things. Not just considered normal, but considered good and right and proper. This is a good household to a first century Roman person. Every member of the household was expected to contribute to the work of the household. We would divide that, in our conception of it, as domestic work and that work in the family business. But they wouldn't really draw a a harsh line between those two categories. It was all just the work of the household. And these men, these heads of households, had all the power in this place. A power that was entirely unchallenged and protected in law and philosophy. Let me read to you some philosophy, some ancient philosophy. This is even older than what Paul is writing. Uh, This is a guy called Aristotle. He's kind of famous. You might have heard the name. Uh, And he wrote these words. Uh, this This is his household code. This is him basically putting down in words how a household should be run. I'll read it to you. You ready? This will shock you. The male is by nature superior and the female inferior, and the one rules and the other is ruled, And this principle of necessity extends to all mankind. He goes on, of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. 
One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female, just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. The free man rules over the slave after another manner from that in which the male rules over the female or the man over the child. All classes must be deemed to have their special attributes. As the poet says of women, silence is a woman's glory, and this is not equally the glory of a man. The child is imperfect, and therefore, obviously, his virtue is not relative to himself alone, but to the perfect man and to his teacher, and in like manner, the virtue of the slave is relative to his master. Now, I've I've condensed it massively. It's actually a lot longer than this. I've just pulled a few key quotes out. But basically, this was what everyone knew was the right way to live. This is what a good household looks like. And they were so particular about it that people like Aristotle would put it all down in words and lay it all out. This is the ancient Roman world. This is the context Paul was writing into when he wrote those words to the Colossians or the Ephesians. In fact, I think you can see that what Paul is doing in the passage we just read is in direct response to these words. I think he has this, these words, this kind of framework in mind. It's, it's different, isn't it? Can you imagine what your life would be like to live 2,000 years ago in ancient Rome and have a household like that? I don't think many of our households function anything like this. Not even close. Is your household your place of business? Are the two completely inseparably one thing? I mean, even if you work from home, which I know a bunch of you do, even if you work from home, or even if you run your own small business out of your home, which I know a couple of people here do, it's still different. You don't live with all your employees. And those employees are not slaves, I hope. Your household is not like this household. Have I made that clear? Okay, good. So, we can just disregard these verses, not even read them in our Bible, rip that page out and move on, right? No, wrong. I hope you know that's wrong. What we need to do is dig deeper. We need to understand the principles that Paul is applying to his world's households, and then we need to take those principles and apply them to each of our households. Even though our households are so different to those ancient Roman ones, there are things that we can learn. What I think Paul is saying in these words is he's saying, how do we live in the overflow of Christ's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness? And how might that change the values and the principles and the practices, practically, of how a household looks? What do we need to change about Aristotle's household code to make a Christian version? So what he does is he addresses each of the same categories Aristotle 
pulled out. Wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. But look, he addresses the wives first before he speaks to the husbands. He addresses the children before he speaks to the fathers. He addresses the slaves before he speaks to the masters. Aristotle spent 90% of his instruction on that man who had all the power and could make a change into how the household ran. He basically didn't think it was important to speak to the wives or the children or the slaves because, well, the husband and the father and the master, who's all the same man, would just tell them how to do it. So speak to them. They've got the power. That's Aristotle's framework, and Paul chucks that out. He speaks to all of the people who were considered in his culture to be inferior. That's the word Aristotle used. By nature, inferior, he said. And Paul says, well, I'm going to speak to them first. I'm going to put them first. You see, for Paul, they are more important because Christianity is about serving, not about controlling. Do you get that? It's kind of implied. You've got to be looking closely to see it. And then look at each of the words he uses to address each of these six people, six categories of people. Submit, love, obey, do not embitter, obey again, and provide. Let's think about each of those. Not getting too hung up on who they are applying to necessarily, but to submit in the Christian world, in the, in the framework of the way that Paul uses that word in other places in the Bible, submission is about generosity of power. Submission is saying, I have the right and I'm going to lay that down and submit to someone else. I could push for what I want, but I choose to let someone else choose. That's submission. Love, well, when he says love, he means love the way Christ loves. In fact, he even says that quite explicitly to the husbands. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And in Ephesians, he unpacks that and says, love your wife as Christ loves the church. Obedience is a form of honour. It's not just doing what you're told. It's honouring the other person. Kindness, or he says in this translation, doesn't he, do not embitter. But yeah, that's kindness, isn't it? Building someone up, encouraging them. Serving, obeying. Well, he says to the slaves, not just do what you're told, because you're a slave and you have to. He actually says, obey out of reverence for the Lord. Because really, you're not obeying this human master, you're obeying the Lord. And finally, he says to the masters of slaves, provide what is right and fair. Or we might say provide justice. And that was very controversial at the time it was written. He's almost implying... Pay them, 
provide what is right and fair. If you pay a slave, they're not a slave anymore. They're just an employee, right? These were super controversial words. Those with the power and the privilege given to them by society are being told in the gospel to provide, to care for, and to love as Christ loves. All of this is actually based on a foundational principle that Paul mentioned some verses ago in verse 11. Now, I kind of skipped over it before because I wanted to save it for this moment. Here's what he said. Here, meaning in the gospel, in the overflow, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So we read these words about wives having to submit and slaves having to obey, and we think this is so outdated and offensive But actually, what's really going on here, when you read between the lines, is what Paul is doing is he's undermining those things. He's taking the power away from that man at the top of the pyramid of the household and saying, Christ is all and is in all. What does it look like to treat people as if Christ is all and is in all in your household. What about your household? What about our unique situations, our modern Nararan households? Uh, as I said, we don't live in ancient Rome. We don't have these Roman principles and values in our households. Here are some of the things I think we do have in our households as Australians. Each of us, I think, will have bits of these to varying degrees. Let me explain what each of them means because I've just put a list of words up there. Uh, The first one is Australians love to be egalitarian, which is a very big fancy word that just basically means having a fair go. You know that one? It's pretty Australian, isn't it? Everyone is treated fairly and equally. Everyone is given a say in decisions. Both of the spice, both the husband and the wife, have a say. In some households, even the children all get a say. Everyone gets a say in the family's decisions. The whole household is equal and fair. That might be your situation. That might be what your household looks like. I'm not saying it should or shouldn't. I'm just trying to identify what are our values, what are our principles. Let's consider them. Secondly, your household might have a high value on individuality. Each person and what they want and what they need is more important than any desires or requirements that other people might have over them. Everyone gets to be their own person and make their own decisions. No one else can tell them who they should be or what they should do or how they should act. That's individuality. And again, in different people's households, that might be true to varying degrees. I'm not making a judgment about it. I just want us to examine it. Thirdly, you might view your household, this is pretty common, as a place of consumption. 
You go out to work or someone in your household earns some money or the government sends you money just because you get those rights. Money comes in from somewhere external to your home and then that money is used to consume, to provide the house itself with rent or mortgage, uh, to provide for your food, your clothes, your furniture, uh, to provide education for family members, to provide entertainment to the household members. Uh, and this, I mean, this has always been true, right? But this becomes our way of thinking about what a household is. If you watch the news or read the news, uh, they often use phrases like household income or household consumption. Uh, many of us are living with the stress of a rising cost of living at the moment, so those words come up a lot. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but it's a framework that would have seemed really strange and foreign 2,000 years ago. This framework that a household is a place for consuming, for consumerism. So these, these are just three. There are plenty more. You might come up with your own isms uh, about the values of Australian households. These might be really familiar to you. In fact, these things might be so familiar to them, it's like how familiar water is to a fish. Like you're swimming in it, and it's just normal. It's just the default. It's what everyone else is doing. It's how everyone else talks and thinks and makes their decisions. This is what a normal household looks like. One of my favorite things, one of the things I really love about history and what we just did this morning, thinking ourselves back 2,000 years to ancient Rome, is that it helps you to disconnect normal from culture. Because there's a bunch of things that we think are normal and default and ordinary that are actually part of our culture. And when you look at a different culture around the world or you look at a different culture back in time, you go, oh, our normal's not necessarily universally normal. It's good isn't it, to sometimes kind of take stock and think a bit more clearly because it's so easy to just sleepwalk through your life, especially your home life, where you let your hair down, where you switch off, and you just go into this kind of default mode and you're like, well, I'm, I'm just at home. I'm not going to think too hard. I'm not going to work too hard. I'm just going to relax. But the thing that you default to the thing that is your normal is not neutral. It's not without values. It's probably shaped by some of these value frameworks that come from our culture. So what I'm saying is, the challenge this morning is to think outside of that normal. To think outside of the box. To say, what are some ways that we can overflow into our homes? Does that make sense? Is your mind being expanded? It's a lot, isn't it? What we're trying to do is we're trying to recreate that, that move that Paul did in his letter to the Colossians, where he went, this is your normal, this is your fish tank, this is the water you all swim in, the household code of Aristotle. Let me step outside of it and speak into it and challenge the bits of it that are not shaped by Jesus. And we too can take our water and our normal, which is different to theirs, and step out of that 
into something that overflows with the gospel. And we need to do that. Not just because I'm the preacher and I said so. But actually, if we stop and think about how do these things play out in our lives, are they really good? Do they create flourishing? Let's think about a few examples where these things show their true colours. Let's look at those first two. Individuality, no, the second two. Individuality and consumerism. What does this mean if your household income is lower than your neighbours? What if you earn less money? What does this say to people who cost money to look after? Someone who's a stay-at-home parent. Someone who's a full-time or part-time carer for someone else. Someone who works as a volunteer and doesn't take a wage. What does it say if you're a child or if you're retired? If you're not an earner and your household, you're not contributing to the income of your household, but you are contributing to the consumption of your household, are you less valuable? That's what our culture is saying, I think, subtly. And what does the gospel say to that? Christ is all and is in all. Love and honour those whose society forgets, whose society looks down on. Give them special honour because their value in the kingdom of God is greater than their value to earn money. I think our household, our, our one in four households alone households, stat from the start, I've been thinking a lot about that. Like, what does our society say to people who live on their own? And it's complicated. And it's a bit weird and self-contradicting. Because in some ways, a lone household where the one member of the household goes out and earns the income and spends the money is the perfect household. This person can spend money on themselves freely, shamelessly, guilt-free. There's no one freeloading off their income in that household. There's not one person's earning more than the other in their household. Isn't that great? Right? And yet, at the same time, we know that actually it can be lonely. It can be really isolating to live alone. Our culture kind of has this weird mixed messaging where we say, oh, you poor thing, you live alone. But also, what freedom you have. How great. It's weird. We have a weird normal when you step back and think about it for a minute. So, what would the gospel say to that one? Well, perhaps it would say, if you're a Christian, you're a person of generosity. You're a person who shares. So, share your households with one another. 
Open them up in hospitality to those who are lonely. And as God's people, look out beyond your own four walls. If you're alone, find ways to use your time and resources for those beyond yourself. And if a neighbour lives alone, find ways to share love and community with them. Break down those dividing lines that say your household is your household and mine is mine. We're going to lock our doors and keep ourselves apart. And the gospel says, no, Christ is all and is in all. So that brings us neatly to question three. This is the last question. This is the end of the sermon. You've done really well. Had a whole history lesson. Now we've got to bring it, bring it into land. Answering this question is going to be unique to your household, to your situation. Everyone is in a different situation here. You might live in a household which is just you. You might live in a household with just one other person. You might live in a very busy, chaotic household with little children running around. You might live in a household with people who are all grown up and have come back. Everyone's situation is going to look different. But think about, think about the people who live there. Think about the people who visit there. Think about your extended family. Think about your church family. Think about those who could be blessed by your home. Think about ways you can extend hospitality. Invite someone over for a cup of tea. Offer them a spare room as a place to stay. Offer babysitting. Host a connect group. Have a cup of tea. Something else entirely outside the box. The point here is that I'm at a loss as to how to apply this to every single person here and at home. Because you're all in a different household. You're all in a different situation. So instead, I'm going to pray for you. The band's going to come up. And we're going to have a little bit of time for you to think and pray and reflect and write something down, something outside the box, something creative, something new that you can introduce to the rhythm of your household. And that's super vague and it's intentional because <laughs> it's got to apply to all your varied situations. Does that make sense? Don't write the first thing that comes to mind necessarily. I mean, you can. But also, you can take a minute to think and pray into it and see what God wants you to do in your home. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for each and every household represented here in this room. Lord, each of us have been called by you into that place. Lord, you have given us a role in that home You have given us uh, the resources of that home. Lord, I pray that you would be inspiring each and every person here, uh, inspiring them by your spirit to know what it would look like to do something new at home, uh, to change something about the rhythms of their home, how they spend their time, how they spend their money, uh, who they have visiting or not, 
Lord, I pray that you would, you would shape and guide us. Lord, that our homes would be shaped by you. Lord, that our homes would be filled with your love. Lord, that we would treat people the way that you have treated us, with love, with compassion, with kindness, with generous, generous love. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people. To continue the conversation, we invite you to join us Sundays at 9.30am and 5pm or on our website at www.nvbc.info.